Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. It is the worst football I've ever seen. I'm coming back to England, man, and I'm keeping my titles. I just remember the atmosphere was incredible. I think that was one of the games that I couldn't wait to get out of. That that was a really important moment in winning the bid as well. Yeah, it just puts you on the spot. <laughs> like you just kind of done there with me. <laughs> <laughs> At least you joined in. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast, the only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic students who interview some of the biggest names in sport. This podcast has been set up by Technolwood School and our aim is to teach our students new skills through podcasting. Each week we chat to famous sportsmen and women from around the world. We delve deep into their sporting careers, their highs and lows and what makes them one of the best athletes in their sport. All of our students' hard work and dedication has paid off as we have recently won a Global Sports Podcast Award for the best equality in social sports podcast. Last enough from me, I'm going to hand you over to the stars of the show, which are our students who host the podcast, and I will let them introduce today's guest. Thank you. Tenorwood School is a school for autistic children and young adults, and I set this podcast up to provide our pupils with a fantastic opportunity to develop a range of skills whilst interviewing top sportsmen and women from a variety of different sports. Joining us today on the TWS Sports Podcast is a professional boxer. He is also a four-time world champion. Welcome to the podcast, um, Carl Froch. How are you doing, guys? You all right? Thanks for having me on. Thanks. Glad to talk to you today. Um, we like to start our podcast with some random questions before we start talking about your career. Are you ready? I certainly am. Who is the most famous person in your phone book? Most famous person in my phone book. Okay, I'll never think about that. Hmm. How are we going to define fame? Let me think. Different people consider different people from different walks of life to be more famous than others. So I'll give you, I'll give you a couple of names. Really good friend of mine, David Hay. He's a retired boxer. He's a bit of a celebrity because he's been on the celebrity jungle. Anthony Joshua. He's the um, former heavyweight champion. Um, Obviously lost his last fight to Usyk. Got a bit of a whooping in that one, unfortunately, for him. Um, people like Ant Middleton, his SES Who Dares Wins, good friend of mine. So there's, there's a couple in there. I think Ant Middleton's probably, because he was on Channel 4 in the SES Who Dares Wins series, um, I could say him. Um, I've also um, somehow got hold of Ricky Gervais' number, but I've never I've never dared to ring him because I've contacted him on uh, Twitter a few times and Instagram. But I don't want to ring him because, obviously, he's, he's very famous and for me, his, his humour, his sense of humour is amazing. Um, but, um, yeah. So the, the guy I could ring up now that was pretty famous, probably Ant Middleton. He'd probably pick up and say, hello, how are you doing? Okay. Um, if you could train lots of anyone for a day, who would it be and why? If I was to train with anyone? Yeah. Probably Mike Tyson. Have a little training session with him, all the pads. Such a big puncher, such a ferocious fighter. I'd like to see how hard he actually hits. Maybe let him give me a body shot or something. That might be stupid, actually, but I think Mike Tyson, the former heavyweight champion. 
If you could go back one day in your life, what would it be? I could go back to one day in my life. Um, hmm, that's a good question, that is. Can I go back? I probably want to go back and change something. Maybe a fight that I lost, oh. being, being as I'm a sportsman. So I lost to a guy called Andre Ward. So if I could, if I could go back to that day, I'd change my tactics in the fight. And... Um, hmm. I think I'd give myself more of a chance of winning, but I'm not saying I'd have won. But yeah, if I could go back to that one. That's the only guy I've not beaten as a professional. I lost to uh, Mikel Kessler, but I avenged that defeat in the rematch. But yeah, if I could go back, I'd go back and um, try and beat up Andre Ward. Um, thank you for answering those questions. Let's chat about your career. We want to take you back to the beginning and talk about your childhood. What are your memories of growing up and did you always want to be a boxer? Um, well, my dad took me to the boxing gym with my older brother, Lee, when I was like eight years old. So I can't say I always wanted to be a boxer. I was kind of just pushed into it and I enjoyed it. I used to like football. I really loved football. I used to enjoy playing it, team sport. Um, I used to enjoy fishing, um, golf, but we couldn't afford golf clubs. So we probably had one club between us. I think it was a three wood we used to just do, or wood. And we used to we used to drive off of it. We used to hit hit it as a use it as a pitching wedge, which you obviously can't, and a putter. So there's lots of different sports I used to enjoy. So I can't say that I was always wanted to be a boxer, um, but boxing was pretty much something I was always good at from a young age because I started it so early. You first tried boxing in Phoenix ABC gym. What are your memories of that time? My memories are walking into that gym on a hot sunny afternoon and sm the smell of the sweat and um, the heat inside. There was a plastic roof in the middle of that gym and um, I can quite vividly remember seeing the, the, the unit, like the cupboard full of old used gloves. And then when I say the smell of the gloves and the hands that have been in and out of the gloves because everybody's like borrowing the gloves. I can remember seeing the lads as well, like lads that were 15, 16 years old, senior boxers punching on the bags really fast and looking really hard and looking really good on the bags. And I could just remember thinking, wow, look at that. Look how good they are on the bags. And one day maybe I could be like that. But yeah, I can remember I can remember that image quite clearly. Am I right in saying that when you were 16, you quit boxing and got involved a lot with the pub culture and started playing a lot of pool and poker? Well, yes, I was... Um, Moved. We moved. My mum became a landlady at about 14 years old. So we moved from Nottingham to Newark. And I had two or three years in Newark. Finished off my school in Newark, actually, um, the Grove Comprehensive in in, um, in that part of the country in Newark. And, yeah, I um, being in pubs, I was playing a lot of pool, playing a bit of poker, doing a bit of fighting. That's what we used to do in pubs. If someone has too much to drink, they get upset and... Um, you end up having a fight. It's not nice, but it was good training for my professional boxing career, which I didn't know I was going to be a professional. But looking back now, I play poker as a professional for a company called Party Poker. I've just got back from Barcelona, actually. I've just done a five-day event over in Barcelona with Party. And, um, yeah, I've obviously um, achieved great things as a world boxing champion. I'm also pretty good at pool and snooker. So it's safe to say that I learned all my trades in the pub game. That was good as well. <clears throat> Why did you decide? Why did you decide? Why did you decide to start boxing again? And when did you realize realize you could be really good? I decided to start boxing again because when I moved to Newark, I I sort of fell out of love with the sport. Where I had to I had to get a bus to get to the boxing gym. Well, when I was in Nottingham, I used to just walk down the hill. And um, the gym wasn't very big. It was like a little shed in the middle of a field. But my gym in Nottingham was a really nice big gym with a full-size ring and all the bags and all the equipment. So I, I kind of stopped enjoying boxing when I was in, in Newark. And I was enjoying playing pool and hanging around with my brothers. brothers. And I was into, like, motorbikes and stuff. And I had a, a scrambler motocross and that. I used to go on that. So I just kind of drifted away from boxing. When I got back to Nottingham... I was 19 years old. I'd been driving for a couple of years. I passed my driving test when I was 17. And I was just getting really unfit. I can remember when my um, I once had a puncher on my car. And I had to run back to my house. It was only like a mile and a half away down the road. I had a flat tyre. 
And I got home and I was so tired, like breathing heavy. I was wheezing. My lungs were wheezing. I just thought to myself, I've only ran like for 10 minutes and I'm absolutely exhausted. I can't, I can't breathe. I need, to, I need to sort myself out and get myself fit again. So I started to go back down to Phoenix Boxing Club at 19 when I moved back to Nottingham from Newark just to get fit. That's how I got back into boxing. But I discovered that I was still quite good at it when I started sparring the lads in there that were competing. And um, I was holding my own and doing very well. So the coach there put me in the national championships. And um, yeah, it went from there, really. Mm. You made your professional debut in 2002 against Michael Pinnock. What are your memories of that? I did, yeah. I can remember being really nervous. It was at the York Hall in Bethnal Green in 2002. And I can remember walking to the ring for the first time with no head guard and no no vest. Um, I just walking just bare-chested to the ring with these small gloves on because the professional boxing gloves are really small. And I can remember just feeling really nervous, thinking, oh, no, what am I doing this for? I don't you know what I mean? Like, I used to be scared fighting. It was it was a natural reaction for me to be quite nervous and quite scared. But um, as soon as the bell went, the nerves used to leave and I used to just get down to business, start throwing punches, start slipping and moving around the ring and doing what I've trained for, for 12 weeks for. So the nerves left me and I enjoyed it. But I can I can quite vividly remember walking to the ring at the York Hall in Bethnal Green, thinking to myself, why am I doing this? I'm so nervous. Um, but obviously the more you fight, the more you win, the more confident you get, and then you start to enjoy it. But right up until my last fight, um, I was pretty nervous, but I able, I was able to control the nerves a bit better. Um, I am then going to skip a lot of fights and take you to the 6th of December 2008, where you fought Ron, uh, John Pascal for the vacant WC super middle weight uh, world title. What was the build-up to the fight, that fight like for you? And it was your first world title shot. Were you extra nervous? Jean Pascal, December 2006, was it? 2008, for the WBC world title. Of course, I was nervous. I was very nervous. This guy was unbeaten. Um, I didn't know if I was going to win or lose. I, I believed in myself. I was confident. I was aware that anything could happen against another top athlete who's unbeaten. And he was a top amateur as well. Training camp for that one was in Ireland, um, Castle Bar and County Mayo. Um, I spent six or seven weeks out there training. I was with Tyson Fury, the, the current heavyweight champion. I was out there training with him because me and him signed with the same promoter all them years ago. And um, yeah, I had a great camp in, in, in Ireland. I came back to Nottingham. And London, I was in between London and Nottingham when I was training. And that fight was in Nottingham at my home town in Nottingham at the um, Trent FM Arena, which it was then. It's now the Motorpoint Arena. And I can just remember being, again, really nervous. I was very, I was confident. I'd had a lot of fights by then. I'd probably had 17 or 18 fights, unbeaten British champion, Commonwealth champion. So I believed in myself. But... I knew I was in deep water. I knew it was going to be tough. I knew it was going to be a hard fight. And it was. It was a tough 12-round fight. Um, but one that I was victorious in. And I became the WBC world champion in front of my home fans. That's great. Um, that fight went all the way to the judges' scorecard. When you are not in, when you are in the ring during the fight, can you tell if you are winning or not? Yeah, you'd sit back and you get feedback from your um, coach, my coach, Rob McCracken. Very good, um, very good trainer and mentor for me. And when I go back to the corner in between rounds, you get an indication as to whether or not you're winning or losing. You kind of know anyway during the fight and during the rounds. If it's a close round, you think that fight, that one could have gone either way. But most of the time, you know if you've won or lost the round. So as the fight was drawing towards the end, round eight and nine and ten, I knew I was just in front, but I knew I needed to finish strong. So I was kind of on the edge and really pushing it right until the end just to make sure that I got that win. How did it felt when they called your name out as the winner? Yeah, it was amazing when they called my name. and the winner from Nottingham. So I know it was me. Carl, the Cobra Frosh. I'll never forget them calling out my name to become the WBC world champion um, in my division. I mean, that was like the pinnacle of my career, to become a world champion. Can't explain the feeling. It's just a feeling of elation. And that feeling where you just feel 
so good and so happy with yourself and so proud and then everybody's shaking your hand, everybody's giving you hugs or your family or your friends and the feeling's amazing for a couple of weeks, two or three weeks. But then you soon get snapped back down to reality when your next opponent's tapping on the door and your next fight gets made and you're matched up with another really good fighter. So then you have to just calm it all down, get back in the gym, get back to training and um, concentrate on your next fight. But yeah, amazing feeling when you become a world boxing champion. I can imagine any sport in the world, if you become the best, the best at what you do and you 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 officially made number one in the world, then um, I'm sure all the other sportsmen in different sports feel exactly the same. My ad, um, why is your nickname Cobra? The Cobra. It sounds good, doesn't it? Carl the Cobra. Um, my coach, Rob McCracken, gave me that coach. There was a, there was a boxer called Don Curry. Um, and he was a top fighter, but he was Don the Cobra Curry. And um, I've got a very similar style to him. And because Carl the Cobra has got quite a good ring to it and it rhymes a little bit, we decided to go with that. I see. That's good. A boxer has to be very dedicated for weeks leading up to a fight. You have to eat right, train lots, and look after yourself. After a fight... What we what would you look like? Did you let loose and have some fun? After a fight, yeah. I mean, I never really partied. I've never been a big drinker. So maybe I'd have a pint of Guinness, maybe a pint of something. But I used to like a bit of Guinness because I used to feel like if I had Guinness, it's not so bad for you because it's got a bit of iron in it and it's like a meal, whatever. So one or two pints of Guinness and I'd feel a little bit drunk. And I don't like the feeling of being drunk because that, that's how it feels when you get hit on the chin. Um, so... It's a, it's a feeling I've tried to avoid all my life. I don't drink now, actually. My, my older brother's nearly eight years sober because um, he was quite a heavy drinker and it, it didn't do him any good when he was drinking too much. So growing up in pubs as well, I've never been a fan of drinking because I see how it changes people. But after a fight, I used to relax. I used to be able to eat what I wanted. I've got a, quite a sweet tooth, so I, used to, I like cheesecake. I like desserts. I'd rather eat, eat dessert than a meal. Um, which ain't the best when you're training because you need your energy from from good carbohydrates like potatoes and rice and stuff and pasta rather than eating sweets. But um, yeah, after the fight for about two or three weeks, um, I did used to let go a little bit. I was a little bit naughty, um, but I used to get back down to training and get back on it as soon as the time was um, needed. As soon as the fight next fight was made, I'd be back in training camp, back to being strict. So it was good to... Good to kind of let loose a little bit after a win and relax and not be under any pressure and do what you want and eat what you want and drink what you want just for a couple of weeks. Um, I want to ask you uh, about something you talk about a lot and that is conspiracy theories. Am I right in thinking that you think that the earth is flat and you can convince us that it is? Well, listen, I can't say whether or not I think the Earth's flat or round, purely based on the fact that I've never been far enough away from the planet or the, the place we live, because it might not be a planet. It might be a flat plane. It might be a realm. I don't know. But because, until I've been far enough up into the sky to look back at Earth, I'm not convinced whether it's round or flat. So I'm quite agnostic about this about the subject. So... I'm not a flat earther. I'm not going to say the earth's flat, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I believe in the heliocentric model and that I believe the earth's a globe and it's round and it spins around at 1,000 miles an hour whilst orbiting the sun at 667,000 miles an hour, 94 million miles away from the heliocentric system, orbiting the whole of the sun in a year, travelling at that speed. Oh, sorry, whilst spiralling through infinite space, the ever-expanding universe, at 1.2 miles per hour. I just don't believe in that. Um, and to answer your question, which I've already done, if I can get high enough in the sky to look back at the earth and see that it's round or flat, that's when I'll be convinced of the shape of the earth. Until then, I'm sticking with the answer. I don't know what shape it is. I think we're being lied to. Because I was going to say, if it's flat, won't we fall off? Well, no, because if the waters and the seas are contained by the ice wall, which you can see, which is Antarctica, um, which is a place you're not allowed to visit or fly over because there's a treaty in place to say you're not allowed to go there or explore it. So if that is the container for all the seas and the oceans, 
then it wouldn't fall off now because it's being contained. But we could talk about flat earth for hours and hours and you won't get through any other questions. If you can, <laughs> if you can tell me that the earth's definitely spherical, definitely round, like a ball, then I'm all ears. Give me, give me one example why you think the Earth's round. My, my theory is it's an optical not. illusion. That's why. Because, like, it's probably to do with gravity, like, i.e. Um, Isaac Newton's theory on it. So that's why I think it's, like, because a lot of space is unknown. My theory is space is infinite. Like, I think hu humanity will never, um, never completely explore the whole entirety of space because I think it's infinite. Well, they're, telling, they're telling us that it's ever expanding and it's this billions of light years across, which is a ridiculous amount of um, distance. But what I'm saying to you is, is there a single thing that you could tell me to convince me that the Earth is actually a globe? Have you got one example that you could say, well, it, it's got to be around because of this? Be My biggest reason is, is the whole planets in general look round. As well. so, every, so everything when you look up into the sky, like the sun and the moon, because they're round, you think that you're on a round planet. Yeah, okay. that's my biggest, because like most planets that have been shown, whether they're evidence of them being a real planet or not, yeah. they're usually round. But so you've, not seen, you've not seen any planets for yourself. You've only seen composite images, so computer-generated images. You can see the moon and you can see the sun with your naked eye. Yeah. You can see that they're in the sky, and they look the same size, don't they, when you look at them? Mm -hmm. But one of them's 94 million miles away, and one of them's 237,000 miles away, but they look the same size. So I'm not convinced that that's perfectly distance away to look the same, and we get a perfect um, eclipse, if you like. I think they orbit us, and they're around us, and we're the centre. Well, I don't think we are. I'm just not convinced we're not either way. But if we're, if we're flat and stationary, and from what we can see with our own eyes, it looks to me like we're sitting still and the sun and the moon go around us. And when it looks like it goes behind the, behind the curve of the earth, it's just actually going further away. A little bit similar to when you stood on a flat road and you've got street lamps, and say you're stood in the middle of a road and you're looking at the street lamps, the street lamp that you're stood next to is above you and you're looking up at the light, and as you look down the flat road, the lights get lower and lower and lower and lower into the distance. But they're all the same height, but they look to go further away. That's the angle of refraction on your eye. That's your vanishing point as them, as them lights go away. That could be happening with the sun. The sun could just be going further away from you, from, I don't know, England going over to the USA or going around over to Australia. And it becomes dark in England and then it becomes light in Australia. What? Why would you? Why would you? NASA, NASA lie lie to us like for billions of pounds of funding? Do you believe we went to the moon in 1969? Are you asking me that? I'm asking you that, yeah. Because um, if you I'm ask most 50 people, on it. fifty fifty. There you go. So, so that you, there's a real high chance there that they're lying to us. So why would they lie to us? It's the same question. Why are they lying? Maybe for control, maybe to keep us contained, keep us where we want to be, you know? And NASA, NASA get funded billions of pounds by the taxpayer in America. So that would be a very good reason to lie, don't you think? So Lots, lots of dollar. So do you think man has ever gone to the moon? I don't believe that man has ever stepped foot on the moon, no. Um, I don't believe it's possible. In 1969, with the technology that they had, which was that as powerful as a calculator they're claiming to have put man on the moon and and, and neil armstrong had a conversation with um president nixon on a landline i can't get signal in burton joyce mate <laughs> <laughs> they're having a conversation over 50 years ago who, who do you think shot jfk i don't think it was lee harvey oswald I think it was a very good president, the people's president, and I think that maybe he was taken out by, by the same people that take out a lot of people that have got big influence, like Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls and Lady Diana. But we're going down a real dark, deep path now, and I wasn't going to talk about conspiracy theories, and you've done a very good job of, of luring me in, so congratulations <laughs> to you. What, what's your theories on 9-11? 
I, I categorically think based on the evidence I've seen and based on the way the towers came down, I mean, it's, it was one of the first steel erected buildings in, in Manhattan. And it's probably the, the strongest structure up to even now to ever be built. And if you, if you fly something to the top of it, which obviously happens, we could see it and, and, and cause damage to the top of a building that's that strong and stable from the ground up with big steel columns. It's almost, and it has been tested by independent um, engineers, it's almost impossible, if not impossible, for that building to implode on itself just because of the heat and the fire from the top floor or the, the middle to three-quarter top floor. So I, I, I strongly give a lot of credence to the theories that the Twin Towers were taken down by the establishment, by the government, um, for the benefit of then creating a war on Iraq and going to Afghanistan to take the oil and take out Saddam Hussein. It's, it's now been made public knowledge that the war on Iraq, so Tony Blair and George Bush, are responsible for an illegal war in Iraq. You know, they're, they're, they're war criminals, effectively. Tony Blair is a war criminal. We should not yeah. have gone to Iraq and killed Saddam Hussein for WMD, weapons of mass destruction, that they never found. So that war was illegal. What's happened to Tony Blair? Is he in prison for doing such wrong, wrongful things and to, for being such a tyranny on, on the uh, Middle East? No, he's not. He's getting a knighthood. I think he's getting the highest honour of knighthood as well. So, um, yeah, things get the, the, the plot thickens, if you like. But no, I don't think the Twin Towers were brought down by aeroplanes. They were definitely hit by an aeroplane, but I think something else brought them down. Um, and Tower 7, by the way, the third tower that no one knows about or talks about, that just collapsed for no reason. That wasn't hit by anything. Apparently, that just got heated up and it was, I don't know, I don't even know what their excuses for that one coming down, but it's not plausible. And the Pentagon was also struck by an aeroplane, apparently. That's true. And the aeroplane disintegrated on impact, melted. There was no no trace or remnant of an aircraft when they got there to have a look at this big hole in the Pentagon. None. There's nothing remain. No remains of the of the of the aeroplane. Like none at all. None of the undercarriage. None of the seats. None of the wheels. Nothing at all. But they did find find a passport from someone from the Middle East that managed to survive the crash. And that justified us going to war in Iraq. But I'm now, I'm now going to be in trouble by the FBI. Um, <laughs> um, April 2009, you defended your world title against Jermaine Taylor. Swift, well, I like what you did there. Go on, carry on. <laughs> this is probably one of your greatest ever fights. We have... A few questions for you about this fight. Taylor had beaten Bernard Hopkins twice and the undisputed middleweight champion. Going into the fight, did you know how tough it was going to be? Yeah, I was totally aware that jumping in with the former undisputed middleweight champion and quite correctly, as you pointed out, that um, Jermaine Taylor beating Bernard Hopkins, one of my heroes. Um, what a legend of a fighter. So I knew it was going to be tough, but I'd just beaten John Pascal in Nottingham, the fight we talked about earlier. I was very confident. And um, like I said, I knew it was going to be hard, but I thought I could beat him. And I didn't have a choice but to fight him because he was mandatory for my WBC title. Um, and it was a very tough fight. It was one of my best comeback wins. I don't think it was my best win. Um, I had 14 more title fights back-to-back with top-level opponents. Um, so I've had I've had quite a few good wins, but that certainly ranks up there in the top three. This fight wasn't shown on British TV, and you had to go to US to fight. Did it annoy annoy you? It did annoy me a little bit, yeah. But it was a, it was all about timing. I won the world title in December two thousand eight, and and after that we had the financial crash, so all the markets collapsed. So the stock market and all businesses, they all start trading low. And basically the the world economy is in a bad state. So television for boxing and ITV. So my fight was on for the world title against Pascal. It was on ITV1, which is great because that's terrestrial television. You get millions of viewers. But they pulled out of boxing after that because of the financial crisis. They, you know, the share price dropped massively and, um, the whole world was in, in trouble financially. Um, and it was annoying, but to the same note, I was doing something that I enjoy. 
I was getting paid well for it. Probably not as well as I could have been paid had the markets not have turned and had I had the television. But that fight was shown on Showtime television in America, um, which is why I got paid. And it was shown on it was shown on British television, but it was shown the next day. It was shown Sunday, which isn't good because really a, a live event like that, a live boxing match, should be shown live. Um, and it was annoying. But to be honest, I didn't think much about it at the time. I was just concentrating on defending my world title. I was a newly crowned WBC super middleweight world champion. And I travelled over to America to fight the best of the best in Jermaine Taylor and defend my title. And I did it in style. And um, I used to box for free. I always enjoyed boxing. When I got back into it, I used to love it. I boxed amateur, won three, or two ABA titles. I won a medal in the world championships. I won various multi-nations medals. I never got paid a penny for that. Um, so to do something that I enjoy and love, whether I got paid handsomely or just decently or not even very much, the fact that I was getting paid for doing something that I enjoy, it was a bonus for me anyway. And I've come from nothing. I've never I've never had any money. I had a hard paper round. I used to get £7 a week. Um, my mum and dad lived on a council estate. We didn't have any money. I was on free school meals and, and school clothing vouchers. I was used to being skint and poor and used to struggling. So to get paid six figures for winning a world title and then close to seven figures for defending it, um, I was very, very fortunate and very grateful of my position. And more importantly than anything, I won that fight and then my career got bigger and better on from that. So, yeah, I've got a lot to be thankful for, but I put a lot of hard work in to get where I had. And, um, you know, I've got to be thankful, but mainly to myself, if I'm honest, without sounding arrogant. <laughs> is it right that the day before this fight you had to go to hospital because you had a problem with your eye and then you nearly failed a drug test because of it yeah well I had two weeks of hobbling around on one leg because I, I sprained my ankle really bad running um, really twisted my ankle bad like my foot turned black and blue with bruising and it was climbing up, my, up to my knee the bruise so I thought I can't I didn't think I was going to be able to box but I was I was jumping on some equipment like the um the spinner bike and the, um, not the treadmill, the, um, what's it called? It's like a, I forgot what their machines are called now because I don't use them. But um, there's another machine to get your cardiovascular up rather than running. So I was doing a lot of that. And um, yeah, I got a scratch on my cornea. So I got a corneal erosion, which is a scratch on the surface of your eye. And it was really, really painful. I couldn't open my eye because it burned. I couldn't close my eye because it'd sting. Um, but I got some drops from the from the chemist in America, and their drugs are quite more powerful. They're they're non prescription drugs, over the counter drugs that you can just go and buy, are a little bit more powerful and harsh than the drugs that you can get over the counter in the UK. So I had this eye drop, which made my eye feel better um, for two or three hours, and I was just dropping away in my eyes. Yeah, and it was um, I think there was a substance in that that it was close to a banned substance but I was fine I did my drug test I passed it I showed them the eye thing that I had and they wrote it all down on the on the um, on the list that they have when they put the drug test board so it wasn't a problem but yeah I was in a bad way with my eye my eye was sore my ankle was sore but I just suck it up and get on with it I've never never pulled out of a fight through injury when I boxed Pascal I had a broken rib from sparring um, I broke my hand in round two or three against Brian McGee, my right hand. I had a Bennett's fracture on my first metacarpal on my right hand when I hit him with a right hook. That happened in round two. I think it was round three that happened. I knocked him out in round 11. So I boxed for like eight rounds with a broken hand. But just got on with it. No whinging and moaning, no crying. Good friend of mine, David Hay, had a little whinge about breaking his little toe and then boxing. <laughs> and that didn't go down very well. So I never complain. I never complain about injuries. Perforated eardrums, broken ribs, broken hands. Just get on with it. Suck it up. Get on with it. Here at the Amethyst Academies Trust, we are incredibly ambitious for our schools and our pupils, and we believe that there is no ceiling on what can be achieved by anyone. Working in partnership with Penhall School and Technal Wood School. 
we are proposing to refurbish the beautiful Penhall Mansion, a Grade 2 star listed building in Wolverhampton, into an exciting and professional specialist vocational college for young people aged 14 to 19 with special educational needs and disabilities. Changing the face of employability for young people with SEND, the college will offer specialist career pathways and in-house vocational learning experiences for students that will be open to the public. Students will be able to develop their skills, knowledge and flourish in confidence across a wide range of audiences. We need to raise £400,000 to refurbish the mansion and provide accessible and stimulating learning and working spaces for students and the community. We are relying on public donations, business relationships and support, no matter how big or small, to make this college a reality for our students. Donate today. Go to www.sedgwick.aatrust.co.uk Sedgwick College. Discover bright futures. In round, in round three of the fight, Taylor knocked you down for the first time in your career. What did you think of the, that time? And what is it like for you to get knocked down? First thing I thought was, you cheeky B. <laughs> I, I think I know which one of the two words you want to say, but you can't because we're here. There you go. So I was very annoyed to be sat on the seat of my pants on the canvas for the first time, but it was a good shot and he's a fast, he's got fast hands. He hit me, he caught me clean. Um, so I had the eight seconds to recover, made sure my legs were going to be not doing the silly dance, like <laughs> wobbly when you get up, like Bambi, a bit like Amir Khan when he gets it on the chin, his legs turn to Bambi. Um, <laughs> you know, I didn't want that to happen. So I gave it the eight seconds, stood up and yeah, I was, little bit concerned. I was quite fortunate that the bell went not far after that. Jermaine Taylor came straight in it with about three or four shots and the bell went, which was good because I was able to go back to my corner and get some rest and recovery for a minute and just listen to my coach, take some instructions from my coach, which I did. And um, yeah, it was, um, it was definitely an eventful fight getting knocked down in round three and then being behind on all the scorecards and then going on to then dramatically knock him down in the 12th and then force the stoppage and get the win in the dying seconds of the last round. Very dramatic fight, but obviously a win's a win. Um, you got off the floor and had a great fight. However, you were losing the fight to on the judges' scorecard going into the last round. Certainly was. You needed to knock him out to win, and with 14 seconds left of the fight, you managed to knock him out. Can you talk us through that last round, please? The last round was me backing him up, throwing jabs, waiting for him to counter back so I could counter the counter, and I could feel that he was getting weaker. I could feel that when I got close to him, I could push him back. So I was getting close to him, hitting around the body, but trying to catch him on the chin. So I knew if I hit him on the chin, I'd probably be able to knock him out. And um, I can remember just being forceful and pushing forward but not being careless. And towards the end of the last round, I managed to slip a right hand, throw a right hand counter, land him flush on the chin, push him back, then through like a screw through the middle uppercut right hand, and that dropped him into the, onto the canvas in the corner. And I thought the fight was going to be over. But the referee, being an American referee and doing what they do when they want the home fighter to win, he counted to eight seconds. Problem was, it took him about 15 seconds to count to eight. So he gave the guy a chance to stand up. Jermaine Taylor stood up, got himself composed. And I was looking because there's a clock on the screen that you can see that the crowd are looking at. And I could see that there was like 20 seconds left. And I thought, his legs have gone. He's in serious trouble and he's in a bad shape. I need to just pile on the pressure now and stop. don't stop throwing punches. Just give it everything I've got. Leave everything in the ring. So I backed him up. And to be fair to Jermaine Taylor, he didn't hold on. He didn't try and scare away. I mean, he may have tried to hold, but I just didn't give him the chance to. So I backed him into a corner when the ref said fight after he stood up and had his 15-second rest. And I just didn't stop throwing punches. And you can count the punches if you if you can be bothered. But there was 18 unanswered punches with his back against the ropes. And the referee had no decision but to jump in and stop the fight. And the American commentary at the time said, and I'll repeat word for word, I'm coming back to England, mom. 
and I'm keeping my titles. <laughs> and I watch that fight back now with, with great pride and um, it makes me smile every time because that was also my wife now, Rachel. I've got three kids with Rachel. That was her first ever boxing match, the first time she'd ever seen me fight. And um, yes, that whole, that whole mm. event and the way in which I won it and the fact that I was defending my world title, that was probably my most memorable fight, but not my favourite, not my best. We often hear boxers say you have to fake it until you make it. What do you mean by this? I think it could mean a lot of things, but for me, fake it till you make it would mean pretend that you're not nervous, pretend that you're not scared, you know, because I used to be very nervous walking to the ring. I, looking back on it now, when I got when I understood what nerves were and that it was the adrenal gland making your body become sharper and faster and stronger as a defence mechanism, I started to work with the nerves and enjoy them a little bit more. Um, but the feeling of being nervous is also the feeling of fear and being scared, and it's not a nice feeling. But faking it till you make it is pretend you're not scared, pretend you're not nervous, fake it. Just walk in the ring nonchalantly and confident, chin out eye, smiling, even though your heart's pounding and you feel sick and you feel nervous and you want to go home. Stand in the middle of the ring, pump your chest out, put your chin up, smile, and just say to yourself, I'm all right, I'm here. I'm going to win this fight. So really, you're pretending to yourself. You're faking it. And eventually, you keep doing that. And you keep winning. All that success breeds confidence. You keep winning. You get Eventually, you get confident. So you're faking it. You're pretending to not be scared until you become world champion. And you've made it. That's what that means for me. Um, the 20, 24th of April, 2010, saw you fight Marco Cat. Kessler? Mikel Kessler. Yeah. You lost this fight and it was the first time you had lost in your career. What are your memories of that fight? And was it the correct decision from the judges? I thought that I'd done enough to win on the night. I thought that, you know, it's close. If I get the win, then I've won fair and square. But to, I was honest with myself and I thought I'm away from home. You know, Mikel Kessler's from Denmark. He's a very, very good fighter, very strong, very tough, very tough man. So I thought if it's close and I lose, there's no complaints. On the night, I thought the decision could go either way. But I wasn't surprised when I lost. And, um, you know, it was it was tough to take at the time. But in hindsight, it was, it was a good thing. I mean, I, I flew out to fight Mikel Kessler in Denmark during the Super 6 World Boxing Classic, which was a tournament I was involved in. And a volcanic ash cloud erupted in Iceland a couple of weeks before that. And all the flights got grounded and nobody was flying around anywhere. So the fight got cancelled, basically. And a week before the fight, when, when it was officially cancelled, they then said, oh, we think we can do it, we can reschedule it, and the Americans can fly this way and come over, and you can fly by private jet from East Midlands Airport. So it was a bad move, really. But I flew out there two days before the fight, and I'd put some weight on. I'd stopped training because I thought the fight was off. But me being me, not wanting to pull out and wanting to just carry on, I flew out there below the ash cloud in some dodgy little private jet. It sounds glamorous, private jets, but it wasn't glamorous. It was a small propelled light aircraft. And my coach, Ron McCracken's really scared of heights. So he was like pale all the way there, hanging onto the window boards. There's like four of us in this little plane, me, Rob McCracken, the pilot, and um, Pat Sheehan, who's a, a guy from the Sun newspaper. He was like doing a report on it all. And yeah, I can remember that flight quite quite close because it was quite low. I can remember seeing the tops of the trees was flew really low and there was a lot of turbulence and turning and my coach was absolutely hating life. Mm. I was just laughing at Rob being really scared because I'm not really scared of flying or scared of heights. Um, but yeah, great fight. 12-rounder against the guy like Mikel Kessler. I've got so much admiration, so much respect for. We now are very good friends. We keep in touch probably on a, a two-weekly basis, even though he's in Denmark. I'm always checking on him. I see him on Instagram and I'll send him a message. And, you know, he's planning to come to Nottingham actually um, later on this summer, maybe with his family, his wife and his kids. So, yeah, me and Mikel Kester become good friends. And we re we had a rematch after that fight. And, um, oh, excuse me a minute, this um, this thing's ringing out here. Just pause that. I'm sure your editor can click up. Just, I'll just get this just because it's Rachel. She might be with the kids. Excuse me a minute. 
Yeah, don't worry about me recording this podcast that you've left me on, and, and I have totally, interrupt, <laughs> totally interrupted it. It's all right, they'll just cut it and come back in. What's happening? So my son's got a detention at school for not handing oh. Problem is, it's an after-school detention, which means he won't get the bus back home, which means I've got to go and pick him up, which means I've now got to phone his headmaster and negotiate with him to give him a lunchtime detention, which looks like it's going to be gone. So I can pick it, so I don't have to go and pick him up. Um, but I'm quite good at um, negotiation. What is it? It's 10 to 1 now. Yeah, I'll phone him up and just say, look, I can't pick him up, so what are you going to do? You can't, you can't be keeping kids back from behind school, I don't think. They can't get That's home. annoying to say the least. Oh, yeah. You have fought a lot of different, in a lot of different countries around the world. What was your favorite place to box and why? Favourite place to box? Um, the favourite place to box was um, in England. I have a probably even better than Wembley Stadium, which was which was the biggest one because it was so, much, so many people in attendance, 80,000. <laughs> what? Just in case you I'm didn't sorry, know. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm lost. What did you say? <laughs> Just in case you didn't know that. Um, I put it out there. Big number. Probably Nottingham. Nottingham Arena. All my friends and family are there. And, um, you know, it's my hometown. I'm sleeping in my own bed the night before, so I'm comfortable, I'm relaxed. Mm. Um, I've, I've visited many nice places all over the world, but the best place I've boxed in for me was Nottingham, just because of the, mm. the memories and the crowds. You then fought Mark um, Kuzler again a few years later and beat him to win the WBA world title. Did you always want to rematch him and get revenge? Absolutely, yeah. Once I lost that fight in the first one, I make no excuses. On, on the night, I thought I could have won, but I didn't think it was a clear win. I'm, I'm not, I didn't get robbed. Sometimes the wrong decision happens. And I don't think that happened in the first fight. He, he, he fought a very good fight. He hit him with a lot of shots, but I hit him with a lot of shots. He actually retired after that fight because um, so, he was, was quite badly injured. He had a torn, torn retina and a, a, a fracture in his cheekbone and a couple of broken ribs and yeah. a broken hand which he which he did by hitting me on the chin but as you know my chin's made of granite and it's impossible to render me unconscious unless you're an anesthesia <laughs> um so the rematch is a fight i always wanted and to get it in england it was at the o2 arena and on pay-per-view on sky which means i own some some good some good bunts and burner nice little learner <laughs> and if you watch the office david brent i'm a big fan hence the old Hence the bunts. But, um, yeah, I think the viewers that like David Brent will get that one. Um, but, yeah, it is a fight that I always wanted to avenge. So it was nice to fight him again and get the win. Um, you then fought George Groves, and it was a controversial fight. You won after the ref stopped the fight, but lots of people said he stopped the fight too early. What are your thoughts on this? No, I thought the referee was very... Um, within his rights to stop the fight at the time he did. I hit George Groves with a couple of big shots. Groves was in serious trouble, wobbling all over the place. And um, I would have probably hit him with a couple of really big shots that he wouldn't have been able to defend himself against, which could have done some serious damage. So Howard Foster, being being an A-star referee and being a brilliant referee, I thought he did the right thing in stopping the fight. But from, from a crowd and a fan's perspective, if you're sat in the audience, you're thinking to yourself, I want to see somebody get knocked down or knocked out. And we didn't get to see that. So, you know, to the layman, to the person that doesn't understand boxing, maybe the fight was stopped a little bit early. Um, maybe the fight could have gone on a little bit more, but it would have been the same result. It was badly shaken up and I think I would have ironed him out like I did in the rematch. But, um, yeah, he fought a really good fight. He put me down in round one and he, he, he outboxed me and beat me up for six rounds after that. But I'm a strong guy. I'm tough. I was very experienced, a very seasoned professional. And it was only round seven and round eight. And I'm still there. I'm still coming for you. And now you're tired. And I'm not tired now. I'm recovered. I've got over for the round one knockdown. And now I want to get revenge. And I'm coming for you. And George Groves knows in his heart of hearts that I was coming for him. And I was catching him and I was hurting him. <laughs> but, um, yeah. It all got settled in the rematch. Did you always want to want to re the rematch with him to settle the score? Absolutely, yes. It was a very close fight because I'd been knocked down and I'd lost probably five or six rounds. And then I managed to turn it around, start to catch him, start to hit him. And the referee kind of, okay, George Gross thinks he was robbed of, of 
the fight and winning on points, I think I was robbed of the chance to knock him out conclusively and get the get the conclusive victory and, 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 and <laughs> not have any arguments. Nobody moaning or arguing. So the rematch was something that I always wanted. The very next day, I'm like, we need to get this fight again. We need a rematch. Um, I was just wondering if you knew how many fans watched your second fight against George Groves. Do you know what? I've heard. I've heard. Of course. What are you laughing at? I've heard. (laughs) Nothing. I've heard there was about 80,000 fans there. I've heard. Mm. Read it somewhere. I don't mention it much. But yeah, it's a big number. That is. Mm. This was a huge fight for both of you at Wembley Stadium. Was this the most nervous you have been in your career? Um, What was the build-up to the fight like? No, it was the least nervous I've ever been. It was the, the fight that I enjoyed the most to build up off and the ring walk, uh, mainly because I knew it was my last fight. I knew I was going to retire after that. I didn't make that public knowledge. Um, so I didn't want anyone thinking that, I don't know, I wasn't prepared and I wasn't going to perform. So it was just something that I kept between me and my coach and my family. This is my last fight. Um, I've had enough now. The desire's gone. So it was nice to be able to train and get up in the morning and run and go to the gym knowing that, you know, this is the last camp. This is the last time I'm going to do it. So let's give it everything. Let's train the hardest I've ever trained. I always train hard anyway, but let's train even harder. And when I did the ring walk at Wembley Stadium in front of 80,000 fans, it was amazing. I looked around, I soaked it up, I took it in. The pyrotechnics were flying, the laser beams, the flames, the music, ACDC, everything was perfect. And ultimately, the most, the, the most perfect thing that happened, the icing on the cake, if you like, with the cherry on top, was knocking out George Groves in front of a capacity crowd no, at Wembley Stadium mm-hmm. and rendering him unconscious. Thankfully, he's okay. He's in good shape. We're now friends. Mm. But I got the win and I finished my career right at the top, right at the peak of my career. Finished on the top of that mountain. There was nowhere else to go but down the other side. So I decided to quit while I was ahead, retire at the top. And being a man of my word, I stayed retired. And here we are eight years later, still talking about it and still smiling about it. You knocked out Grave, Groves to, to, to win the fight. Was that the best knockout of your career? I think it probably was, yeah. It was the best knockout. I mean, I've, I've had other fights that are, classed as knockouts even though they're technical knockouts so like Lucian Butte was a great win but he was kind of stopped on his feet he was getting punched with shots but he was still standing so to me that don't count as a knockout it's a TKO technical knockout um, I've not knocked many people out with one punch especially world champions and people who are of that level because they can take the punches and they're strong and they can hit you just as hard as you hit them but that punch that I connected on George Groves's chin in front of 80,000 fans at Wembley Stadium, that was probably the best punch I've ever landed. Knocking somebody out with a one <laughs> blow, that was probably the best one. To be, a bo- to be a boxer, you have to make a certain weight. I was wondering how you found that. Um, also, after a weigh-in, would you try and put as much weight on as possible to go into the ring? So I found it quite easy up until I was about 32, 33. So towards the end of my career, the last three, two or three years of my career, it was quite difficult to, to get down to 12 stone, 168 pounds or 76 kilograms, depending on um, whether you're imperial or metric. But most people now work in kilograms. But yeah, to get down to 76 kilograms from like 81, 82, it was, it was hard for me in my 30s and because my body wants to hold on to weight more metabolism slows down but um yeah i mean i made the weight i made the weight easy enough um but a lot harder towards the end but i had all my strength and i'd always get into the ring fully prepared and fully hydrated so it was never really a problem for me what what are your thoughts on youtuber boxers youtuber boxers you know you know what it brings a bit of attention to the sport brings attention to boxing um, so I haven't got a problem with it. Like Jake Paul, a lot of people have problems and say, oh, he shouldn't be earning that kind of money. And it's, it's almost, it's, it's not good for boxing because there's fighters that are genuine world champions or British champions, if you like, that are nowhere near that kind of money. Well, my answer to that is, well, 
he's earning the money because he's got a big following and he's built up his social media presence and he's he's, he's famous in his own his own domain. So he's a he's a YouTuber and he's got millions of people who follow him and millions of people who want to pay to see him. So he deserves to earn that money by the virtue of the fact that he's the one that's controlling the fans, you know. So fair play to him. I'm happy for him. Um, so that's one point. He earns the money. It's mega money. He deserves it. Who else are you going to give the money to? He's the one that demands it. He's the one that earns it and generates it. So he should be the one that's banking it. Secondly, um, what do I think of them? They can't fight. Jake Paul, Logan Paul, they're absolutely useless. They're not professional fighters. They're not even, they're not even amateurs. They're, they're playing at the game. You know, he jumped in with Floyd Mayweather, who's half his size. Mayweather came out of retirement. I don't know if you saw that fight, but Mayweather was literally just playing around with him and holding him up until he decided to take him out. Um, so I don't think they're very good fighters. I'm not really interested in watching them because it's not proper boxing. It's like swinging handbags. Jake Paul's improving. You know, Logan Paul, he's getting better, Jake Paul. He's improving. But you'll see the minute he steps in with a, a proper professional, which he probably never will, it would be a mismatch. But... Leave him to it. Fair play to him. Good luck to him. Who would win, AJ or Fury? No, oh, I don't. I don't even think that's. Some, I don't even think that's even close. I think you know the answer. Like, you know the answer to that yourself, don't you? Uh, Who do you I think would win? You no, I, I don't know either. <laughs> Who do you think? I think AJ. Oh dear. How would you, why would you? Why would you think Anthony Joshua could beat a man who's unbeaten? Because mm. I mean. Because you well, never know, because I mean, does he, Tyson, does I'm a big Tyson fan myself, but yeah. I remember that AJ has been also very skilled. So I think he could probably like have the, it'd probably be like the last laugh moment where it'd be like, oh, you're thinking Fury wins and then AJ's got the last bum to it. You think, I don't think AJ is a big enough puncher to give him that one punch. And even if he did land it, we've seen with Tyson Fury, he got hit by the biggest puncher in, in, in world boxing, in Deontay Wilder, and he got off the canvas to win. He got a draw in that first one, but he, he didn't have a problem. Anthony Joshua got beat up by that kid from Mexico. You know, the little fat one. Yeah. <laughs> what? He got, yeah. he got beat up. Yeah. He's just yeah. now been outclassed by Alexander Usyk. Outclassed. Usyk's a cruiserweight. He's smaller than him, less reach, not as strong. And he outclassed Anthony Joshua. I don't think Usyk would beat um, Tyson Fury. I don't think he'd get near him. Fury would be too big and too good for him. So... When you look at them, you know, variations, if Usyk can't beat Fury, but he outclassed Anthony Joshua, how does Anthony Joshua now beat Tyson Fury? What does Anthony Joshua do to beat Fury? I think he, can't knock, he can't knock him out. <laughs> he can't knock him out, and he hasn't got enough boxing ability to outbox him and outmaneuver him. Um... So maybe a lucky punch might land, but Tyson Fury don't get hit with lucky punches. Uh, I would just like to say a big thank you again to everyone who listens to our podcast. We really appreciate it. Please continue to leave reviews and pass our podcast on to your friends and family. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today, Carl. We really enjoyed speaking with you and it means so much to us as a school to be able to have the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. Listen, absolutely my pleasure. And you can guarantee now there's going to be a front page on one of the tabloids, probably the Daily Star. <laughs> And it would be Carl Frotch stinks the earth flat and the Twin Towers were brought down by a conspiracy. It's <laughs> <laughs> probably going to get me into a bit of trouble, but I don't mind because we're here to enjoy each other's I'm company. I'm sure you used to No, thank you. I really enjoyed the interview. Thanks for um, asking me all them wonderful questions. So, Jay- Jacob, what was your thoughts on today's episode talking to Carl? I think it was pretty good. I did like to do story on that. I think it was pretty good. Yeah, I honestly enjoyed this one um, very much. Um, Carl was very comedic at times, and also it was good to talk about um, not only conspiracy theories, but also his career. Um, yeah, really great person. I enjoyed this episode a lot. Make make sure, guys, to go follow our social media, um, TikTok, Instagram, uh, Facebook, Twitter, etc. And yeah, peace, guys. Peace. The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. 
This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism, and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine. Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.